Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today, we have reached the penultimate episode in our 12-part series about the great essays and the great essayists. And we have reached 2014 and Tanahisi Coates's essay published in the Atlantic magazine called The Case for Reparations. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the home of the great essay and the great essayists. And you can access all the new editions plus the LRB's peerless archive by subscribing at a special rate. Just go to lrb.me slash ppf. Subscribe at lrb.me slash ppf. Before I start talking about the essay, which is the subject of this episode, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about a film. It's a film that came out this year, so I apologize, there are going to be plot spoilers. I have to tell you what happens at the end. It's called The Burial. It stars Jamie Foxx and Tommy Lee Jones, and it has a pretty unpromising sounding setup for a movie. It's about a man called Jeremiah O'Keefe, played by Tommy Lee Jones, who is the owner of a small chain of funeral parlors in Mississippi. We're in the 1990s, and he's run this family business all his life. He's quite elderly, and he gets into financial difficulties, and he realizes he needs to sell some of them at least to save himself from ruin. And he enters into a deal with a big Canadian funeral home chain called the Lowen Group. And they agree and sign a contract to this effect that they will buy some of his parlors off him at a fair price, and this will save him, and then it will give them a foothold in the Mississippi funeral home market. But he discovers quite quickly they don't mean it. It's a con. They have no intention of honoring the contract. Basically, they're just delaying in the hope that he'll go out of business and then they can buy what he has. He'll be done and they will own this whole chain in Mississippi. And so he decides to sue them. Like I say, it's a pretty unpromising setup for a movie, a funeral parlor owner suing a big funeral parlor chain. It's not about that. It's about race. The whole film is about race. And it's about race in a series of different ways. So to start with, it's about race because this Canadian company trying to get into the Mississippi market, the case is going to be heard in Mississippi, the civil case, in a county which is 70% black, which means that the jury will be majority black jurors. So Jeremiah O'Keefe, for a mixture of cynicism and idealism, decides to hire a black lawyer to represent him. And he picks a guy called Willie Gary. And this is all true, by the way. This is based on an essay in The New Yorker from the late 1990s. It took a long time to make it into a movie. He hires a lawyer called Willie Gary, who back then was basically a personal injury lawyer. He was kind of glorified ambulance chaser. And he had only to that point represented black clients very successfully. 
And O'Keefe offers him this case and tempts him to take it on the grounds it's a different kind of case. It's a contract law case, so it would give him a different kind of profile. And it's a chance to take on a really big and basically pretty crooked company. When the big and pretty crooked company discover that O'Keefe has hired a black lawyer, they hire a whole team of black lawyers. And they make a woman the lead of that team. They kind of raise him on this kind of politics, let's call it that. And the first part of the film, in fact, the bulk of the film is the playing out of this kind of racial politics in a courtroom around a case about funeral homes. And at various points, some of the characters, including Jeremiah O'Keefe, say to his lawyer, Willie Gary, who's played by Jamie Foxx, why is this all about race? I mean, this is meant to be about contracts and funeral parlours, but it is. So to give one example, one of O'Keefe's team's key witnesses turns out to be a white guy whose grandfather was in the Ku Klux Klan. It's discovered and, and it's revealed on the stand. So he's put in this incredibly uncomfortable position in front of the black jury. And he's basically discredited for that reason. How can you trust this guy? His grandfather was in the Ku Klux Klan. And O'Keefe says, sort of in increasing frustration. What's that got to do with my case? It's not his fault. His grandfather was in the Ku Klux Klan. That hasn't got anything to do with funeral parlors, but so be it. And in that kind of contest, the other side are basically winning. They have lawyers who are more experienced at this kind of case. They know better how to play on and how to exploit that kind of political sentiment, political sentiment around race. And O'Keefe realizes he's probably going to lose. And he thinks he'd better settle. He, he develops a close relationship with Willie Gary, but you know, there's lots of good, slightly schmaltzy scenes around this. But in the end, it looks like they're going to lose. And then the film takes a twist. And the twist is, it really is about race, but in a very different way. Because they've been looking for evidence that this big Canadian group, the Lowen Group, are price gougers, are routinely twisting, breaking the law, or circumventing the law to exploit rivals, customers, and to make their billions. And it's a huge group by this point. It has indeed made billions, and it's one of the biggest funeral chains in North America. And the evidence that they find relates to a relationship that the Lowen Group has built up with a black church, a huge black church with millions of members, the Southern Baptist Convention. And the Lowen Group came to an agreement with some of the leaders of that church that they would be the funeral service provider of choice for its members, its millions of black members. And more than that, they would also hire some of the members of the church to sell these services to other members of the church, so that they would be buying these services from people they trust, from people within their own church communities. But what transpires is that this is all a massive ripoff. The loan group is doubly exploiting the members of this church. First of all, exploiting the people that they hire to sell the services, because these are people who don't have many opportunities. I mean, a lot of the members of this church are poor. These people who don't have many opportunities to make extra money. This seems like a good opportunity sanctioned by their church leaders, but they, they are then being asked to sell to their fellow church members products at vastly inflated prices coffins that cost two times, three times as much as they would normally retail for. Funeral services packages where actually a lot of the basics aren't included. You have to pay extra for embalming, for moving the body. The whole thing is a giant ripoff. And it is preying on and exploiting the vulnerability 
of the people to whom these services are being sold. A double vulnerability. On the one hand, they are being exploited because they have worked out that if you can do it within the church, it feels like it is church sanctioned. And secondly, because many of the people who are buying these services do not have other options. They have got themselves, through no fault of their own, in a position where this is the service that's available, and they end up paying vastly inflated prices that they cannot afford. It is exploitation, and it is exploitation which is at least grounded on racial discrimination because it does become clear they have deliberately targeted a black church for these purposes. And the loan group has made hundreds of millions, possibly billions, out of this essential scam. Because if you sell a product for three times what it would be available elsewhere, you are price gouging. When the jury hears this, the case is lost by the Lowen Group, and they find for Jeremiah O'Keefe, and he wins, and he wins enormous damages. They, the, the bad guys try and buy him off, they make him an offer, who knows, I mean, in the movie, who knows what really happened. In the movie, he holds firm, trusts in the jury, and the jury award $100 million in compensation and $400 million in punitive damages, and effectively, over the next few years, put the Lowen Group out of business. So the good guys win. But there is, at the end of the film, it's not explicitly stated, it's merely buried in the finale of the story, a nagging thought, which is, great, the bad guy's lost, and O'Keefe, as played by Tommy Lee Jones, is a good guy, he's a nice guy. He wins, so it's heartwarming. But it's hard to avoid the feeling that the compensation has gone to the wrong person here. The compensation has gone to a reasonably well-off, though in financial difficulty, white owner of a chain of funeral parlours, whereas the people who should have been compensated are the members of the Southern Baptist Convention, who have been systematically and routinely ripped off on the basis of race for many years by a vast Canadian conglomerate. They are the ones who should be compensated. It's a story that turns on race and the case is won because of the evidence that's revealed of systematic racial discrimination and exploitation. And yet the result is wealthy white people hand over money to a in financial difficulties, but still, relatively speaking, privileged and well-off white guy, who then sets up a foundation to share some of his good fortune with the real victims of the story. But still, it leaves a slightly uncomfortable sense at the end of the movie. Right, that's the movie. What's it got to do with this essay? When I saw it recently, it really reminded me of Ta-Nehisi Coates' essay, The Case for Reparations, because of the way in which it's structured, in the sense that there are three parts to the story of the movie, which do map on to, I think, the three elements of the story in Coates' essay. It begins with the common understanding that, in a way, in America, everything's about race. You can't avoid it. Race, racial politics, racial discrimination, the history of racism in America, the Klan and everything else, particularly in a place like Mississippi, it's everywhere in, in, in all sorts of encounters, including what looks like something which is a white funeral parlor owner taking on a big white funeral parlor chain. And yet somehow it becomes about race because race is everywhere. That's the first thing. So it's not like people aren't aware race is everywhere in America, questions about race. But then what's revealed is there is a much deeper, more significant, more systemic story to be uncovered, which is of systematic exploitation, financial exploitation of black Americans on the basis of their race. And yet at the end of that exposure, 
what should happen doesn't happen, which is the restitution, the compensation does not wind up with the people who are the genuine victims of this exploitation. Somehow it gets diverted. And something like that is what Coates is writing about too. Race is everywhere, but there is a story to be told which is much, much more precise, specific, and is a focus on systems, systematic exploitation and on the basis of race. And when that story is seen, it is unarguable. It will persuade anyone that there is something going on here. And yet the next step is the really hard step to take, even when it is seen How do you get people to recognize that the only reasonable response is restitution, is compensation, is reparation? And the other connection is that Coates' essay starts in Mississippi, the setting for the burial. It starts with an account of life in Jim Crow, Mississippi, for a sharecropper, for a, a typical victim of the ruthless and unequivocal exploitative system that existed in the American South under Jim Crow, which was not slavery, because slavery had been abolished. And he's writing about the middle of the 20th century, so for nearly 100 years, but is effectively a form of debt slavery or debt servitude, debt peonage, as he calls it, where people, black Americans, are trapped in relationships in which it is impossible for them to work their way out of a burden of debt because the system is geared to make it impossible to pay the debt off. The people to whom money is owed will keep extracting the products of black Americans' labor on the land past the point where anyone can get out from under a burden of debt. And there is no protection because it's Jim Crow. You can't remedy this injustice. You can't go to law. No white jury will find for you. You can't find political remedies because black Americans in the South under Jim Crow are prevented from voting. You can't organize. You can't get out by building a business because you can't get out from the debt to even start to get out from toiling on the land and somehow doing what other Americans are able to do when they get trapped, which is find another outlet for their hard work, for their creativity, whatever it is. The only escape is literal escape. And this is the other parallel with slavery. To get out from under this system of debt peonage, you've just got to get out of the South. You've got to get North in the same way that to escape from slavery as a slave was literally to go North. If you could get there, risking your life in that case in the process. And so he then moves the scene of the essay, the argument of the essay from Mississippi to Chicago. The great migration to the North in the first half and part of the second half of the 20th century from the South of tens of millions of black Americans to get out from under Jim Crow style exploitation and the stifling of any possibility, opportunity for a life that could develop and progress in the way that in America, you're told you can do that by hard work, get North Chicago, one of the many places that many black Americans from the South wound up. And he describes the experience of a man called Clyde Roth who was the son of a sharecropper. And incidentally, Willie Gary, the lawyer whom Jeremiah O'Keefe hires in the burial, is also the son of a sharecropper who, by a complicated series of good fortune and hard work, managed to acquire a law degree, turn himself into an extremely successful trial lawyer, but in one generation. Clyde Ross also, in that case it's Georgia, Clyde Ross, Mississippi, escapes to Chicago with his family, where it is much better. So there is some legal protection. 
there is some political remedy. There are black representatives. It is possible to vote. It is possible to participate. Chicago is not Mississippi. Illinois is not Mississippi. But there is still systemic exploitation. And the example in the essay, which is the central theme of the essay, is the housing market. Clyde Ross wants to own his own home, which is a classic part of the American dream, not even the American dream. I mean, it is a thing that to which people aspire, especially if they think it is one of the rewards of hard work and a life of serious toil. He wants to put the money that he's earned towards buying a home, but he discovers in Chicago, as a black American, the options are vastly more limited than they would be for his equivalent, but white. This is partly because the kinds of mortgage services that are on offer to black Americans in Chicago are much, much more limited. Most firms will not sell mortgages to would-be black homeowners. So because the choice is limited, the terms are much harsher. And the kinds of mortgages that someone like Clyde Ross could get to buy a home are basically exploitative. There is no loan insurance that federal government schemes that mandate forms of loan insurance do not extend to cover the kinds of mortgages which are the only mortgages that are available to home buyers who are black in Chicago. The mortgage services on offer are exploitative in part because they offer no equity. However reliable or regular you are in repaying your mortgage, if you miss a month, you will lose your home. It will be foreclosed on and you will be left with nothing, which happened to many, many black American families in Chicago. You could spend 10 years, 15 years paying off your mortgage. You could miss a month. They'll repossess your home and just sell it on to another black family and you will have nothing. And at the same time, the home that you have bought will be much more expensive than it would have been were you trying to buy it as a white family. Two times, three times more expensive because there is so much less option. There are only certain parts of town in which it is possible to buy a home as a black Chicagoan. There are only certain parts of town in which anyone will lend you money to buy a home as a black Chicagoan. And because of that constraint, because of the limitation of options, the lack of choice is what drives up the price. If you want a home and you are black, this is the only way you can do it. And no one will provide a remedy because the market is set up not to remedy this. The market is geared around an understanding that there are black parts of town and there are white parts of town and the rules are different. The rules in the black part of town is would-be homebuyers are not protected in the way in the white part of town they would be. And so not only is it much harder to keep up with your mortgage payments and not lose your home, but the payments are much higher, just as the coffins were more expensive in the National Baptist Convention, two times, three times more expensive. And the services were far worse. No embalming, no moving of the body, no insurance for your mortgage, no equity for all the money that you've put in over the years. This story is, on one level, a pretty universal one. So this isn't just about America and it isn't just about the experience of black Americans. It's a story about poverty. And there is a truism about poverty which applies in many places. Poverty, counterintuitively, being poor is really expensive. You pay more for being poor. And the reason is that you have fewer options, fewer choices. You lack the resources to explore 
the options which would give you a better deal. You are trapped. You are trapped in terms of basic income. You're trapped in terms of social capital, time, the ability to search out different options. If you are living from day to day, if you are close to the breadline, it's much harder to find the mental space, the social space in which to seek out a better deal. This is a truism of poverty. It costs a lot to be poor. And that applies to everything from taxation. The rich pay, relatively speaking, less tax than the poor, not in aggregate terms, but in relative terms, because the rich can afford the services that are required to avoid tax. Lawyers, or even just the time to recognize that there are loopholes or there are ways around this. If you do not have the time or the resources, if you are trapped in a life where tax is just going to come for you, you pay more. From tax at one end to food at the other end, food, good food, and by good food here I mean healthy food, costs more if you're poor. In a just world, it would cost less if you were poor. But the reason it costs more is you are likely to be living in a poor part of town where there are fewer food retailing options. And what is available will assume that people can't afford good quality food, which means that anyone who is selling good quality food in that part of town will be charging more for it on the assumption that there's less demand. And these are vicious circles. And therefore, because they charge more for it, there will be less demand. And because there's less demand, the market will be geared towards pandering to bad quality food, but that will still be more expensive because there will be fewer outlets. There just will be fewer food shops. You will have to buy from the shop that's there, the one group of people who are willing to sell in your part of town, the one group of people who will give mortgages to, to black would-be homebuyers. And they can charge their own terms. It's a kind of monopoly problem. The monopoly of the people who sell to the poor makes being poor really expensive. That is a fact of life, and it is one of the great challenges of any campaign for a more just world to address that. And Coates knows this, and he acknowledges it. But what he wants to say in this essay is this is not part of the universal problem of poverty, poverty being costly. This is the specific and worse problem of black poverty, because the economic logic, if you want to call it that, of the exploitation of the poor intersects in the American story with race and racism and racial discrimination. These mortgages are denied to black Chicagoans, not just because they're poor, but because they're black. The firms are internalizing a combination of a, in their own minds, economic logic of not wanting to sell mortgages to people they're not sure will pay them back. And an instinct that as white firms, they don't want to do this with black would-be homebuyers, leaving the market to the few who are willing to do it. And the few who are willing to do it by another kind of economic, or maybe it's a moral logic, tend to be the price gougers. Race and economics intersect. There is a, a racism behind the economic logic, and there is an economic logic behind the racism. And this manifests in a number of ways, and, and a large part of Coates's essay is trying to unpick this, is trying to characterize the ways in which these two aspects of the story feed off each other. So there is, for instance, in the American case, a fatalism about this because of race, because of an assumption that this is a racist society, and it's a fatalism on both sides of the divide. Coates talks to interviews, some of those 
black inhabitants of Chicago who have had these terrible mortgages and who have suffered under this kind of, it's not debt peonage, but it's not a million miles from that, under this kind of exploitation. And he asked them, why did you sign up for this terrible deal? I mean, why did you do it? You knew you were paying twice as much for this house as it was worth. And you knew when you signed the contract that there was nothing in it to give you protection. The normal protection that a mortgage contract should contain is not in these contracts. You knew that. So why did you do it? And one of the answers he gets is, we had no choice. This is America. We're black. Who else is going to give us a mortgage? In something like the same way within the National Baptist Convention, the assumption that who else is going to offer us funeral services but our church? In this case, where where were we to go? And it is said with passion by some of these people who are interviewed, and we wanted to own a home. I mean, this is, you know, it's not just a sort of right. It's a really meaningful and significant aspiration. And it made a big difference to us to have our own home, to own our own property. But I'm afraid if you are black, it is going to be on pretty awful terms. And there is attempts by people who understand this to organize, to, to launch civil actions, class actions, to try and get together, to recognize the injustice. It's incredibly hard, slow, painful work to get legal representation, to get political representation. It's not like the people who are being ripped off don't know they're being ripped off. But there is a fatalism about it. We can't wait for the world to become a juster place. We want to own a home. And for many of those who think like that, it does then become a trap because the mortgage is too expensive, the home is overpriced, the neighbourhood isn't one in which house prices hold up. And that's the other side of the story. There is also a fatalism on the white side in this, which manifests as what came to be called white flight. So even if there are ostensibly laws that are trying to prevent the city from becoming divided between black areas and white areas being zoned, as it's sometimes called, the economic logic underpinned by racism or the racism underpinned by economic logic drives that. And Coates also cites white homeowners who say, I've got nothing against the black family who've moved into my neighborhood. You know, these are these are nice people. They're good neighbors. But I can't ignore the fact that since they moved in, the price of my house has gone down. It goes down every week. Every week they're here, it goes down. And I'm getting out. I'm not getting out because I don't like these people. I'm getting out because the world seems to be organized in such a way that when they move into my neighborhood, my neighborhood starts to become, in the minds of the people who fix these prices, essentially, a black neighborhood. It's on the way to becoming a black neighborhood. And I don't want to get out because I don't want to live among black neighbors. I want to get out because I want my home to keep its value. A recognition, a resignation to the ways of the world, because it's assumed that there is a logic of race behind this that cannot be challenged. So the logic of race and the economic logic feed off each other and there's nothing anyone can do about it. And then there is also the fact that if the economic logic doesn't work, violence will do it. So there is also in this story, which it makes it different from in many ways, the more general universal story of the cost of being poor. In order to enforce this way of organizing a city like Chicago so that black inhabitants of the city can be effectively corralled in parts of town where they can be exploited. And because race actually makes it more visible, I mean, there is a visible symbol of this, the black part of town, the white part of town, people will know which part of town they're in, and they may say, I'm not prejudiced, but, but, but. And yet, in the background, there is also the possibility of violence to enforce it. 
if the people won't move to the place where you can exploit them, you will burn crosses on the lawns. You will riot. If black communities find a way to assert themselves, to organize so that they can actually have the rights and protections which give them a better chance, you burn those areas down most notoriously, most awfully in Tulsa, in Oklahoma, in 1921, what was called Black Wall Street, burnt down. Violence underpinning a fatalism, both of which feed off what looks like a logic. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And the result of this is a divergence which is on a far greater scale than merely the divergence between the rich and the poor. Everyone understands in America there is a huge gap between the rich and the poor, and the poor will lead very different lives from the rich, and the poor will be exploited in ways that the rich aren't, and by the rich, all of that. But this is the divergence between black people of a level of income and white people of a similar level of income. Coates gives various examples of this. I'll just offer a couple really striking examples. One is that, and he's writing in 2014, that a black family with an income of $100,000 can expect to live in a part of town that is lived in by white families with an income of $30,000, three times more expensive. Or, as he says, a black man with no criminal conviction is as likely to be hired for a job as a white man with a criminal conviction. That level of divergence cannot simply be explained by the difference between being rich and being poor. That is about race. And then, as Coach shows, it goes all the way back in American history. It goes back to the beginning of the American story. In the 17th century, he writes, when black Americans were predominantly slaves, the life of a black American actually was not so different from the life of the very poorest whites because the poorest whites were living under forms of debt servitude, debt slavery. They were being exploited in the way that sharecroppers were exploited in the 20th century. In the 17th century, whites could be exploited in that way. And the very poorest whites in early America were completely vulnerable to the worst kinds of exploitation. But there was still, even from the beginning, a categorical distinction between being a debt slave and being an actual slave. The whites had some rights, some protections, even minimal. And over time, if you have a bit of protection, you can turn it into a bit more. So that white labor progressively became a little bit more expensive. It became harder to exploit the whites, the poorest whites. The slaves had no protection of any kind, nothing. 
So once you get the beginnings of that divergence, it becomes self-reinforcing. The cheapest labor will always be slave labor because slave labor has no protection. And in the absence of protection, you can exploit it to the best of your ability. Even the very poorest whites were not completely limitlessly exploitable because of various kinds of emerging legal and political protections. And once the story gets going, the divergence just gets bigger and bigger under slavery. Slavery becomes the default option for people who are looking to exploit the cheapest forms of labor. And the absence of protections reinforce what's going on. So again, to take one example that Coates writes about, which is the family, the family unit, which is one of the basic protections here. So for instance, if you want to try and persuade a man to leave his family behind in order to work for you, you will probably under normal conditions have to pay that person more. I mean, people do it all the time. People who are living in poverty may find that they have to leave their families and go and work somewhere else in, in say, a European context, in a different country, in an American context, in a different state, in order to earn enough to support their family. But they're doing it because they will be paid more. That's the protection in a sense. You have to persuade someone to leave their family behind. And families under all legal systems, pretty much anywhere in the world, I think, do get certain kinds of protections. There's always some protection for families, for people who have children, for, for married couples, but not under slavery. The family unit is completely empty of protective status under slavery. And the story of slavery in America was of families constantly being broken up for economic reasons, and there was nothing anyone could do about it. Slave husbands simply sold away from their wives, parents from their children, siblings from each other. The family unit constantly broken up because the family unit has no protection under slavery. And it's being done for reasons of economic logic. You don't have to pay this person more to go and work, not in this state, but in that state, because this person is a slave. You can just sell them on. Human labor is just being sold because the human beings are being sold. It keeps the price down. You don't have to offer more. You just sell. If there is a part of American life where even the family does not provide protection against exploitation, that part of American life will be where the exploitation is concentrated by people who are just trying to, I say just, just trying to make money any way they can. The exploiters will find the part of American society where exploitation is easiest. And in Coates' telling, that story continues beyond slavery through Reconstruction, the end of Reconstruction, not just through the Jim Crow South, but in the North too. Where there is less protection, you get a vicious circle. The exploiters will seek out that part of American society to exploit. And in exploiting, they will limit the opportunities of the people they are exploiting to find protection because they will be being exploited. The resources will be reduced when what those people need is more resources simply to protect themselves from exploitation. And so the divergence continues, underpinned by the twin logics of economics, and though it's not a logic, it's a prejudice of racism. Coates then goes through many of the arguments that are made by people who recognize there is a systemic imbalance in the life chances and opportunities and basic financial security of black and white Americans at comparable levels of the socioeconomic ladder. 
it is much harder to get up and out for the black Americans than the white Americans. Black Americans are much more vulnerable to accidents and to unforeseen events and so on. That recognition then goes along with a set of arguments, each of which Coates rejects as the solution to this problem. One of the arguments is to go back to the family and to say, well, we haven't got slavery anymore. So families can provide protection. And one of the things that sociological studies have revealed about the life of black Americans is that the absence of a stable family structure often correlates with diminished life chances. Too many black Americans, so the argument went, are being brought up by single mothers. Too many black fathers are absent and so on. So both white politicians, but also some black politicians in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, would say routinely, well, look, as it were, it's within the hands of those people who are suffering these diminished life chances to improve them, create stable family lives. And we'll see, you'll see that the chances of young black boys and girls in stable families are better than in the less stable families. So there is an imperative to defend, to build up the black family unit. And Coates says, that's not the point here. The point is not the comparison between stable and unstable black families. The comparison is between stable black families and stable white families. If you do what you are being told to do by your slightly hectoring political so-called helpers, you build a stable family unit. As a black family, you will suffer systemic exploitation. You earn $100,000. You will only be able to live in the parts of town in the kinds of houses that are bought by white families earning $30,000. So your $100,000 gives you no protection. It's gone on your housing. You need money for education, for better food. You need money sometimes for lawyers. You need money as insurance. Insurance is key to this. If you are effectively uninsured, not just in your mortgage, but because so much of your disposable income is being passed to the people who are giving you the only terms on which you can buy a house, and then something goes wrong, you get sick, whatever it is, you miss a mortgage payment, you're done. You are so much more vulnerable as a stable family than the white equivalent. That's the story. Then there's an argument about poverty reduction programs. This is clearly a problem of poverty. The poor suffer because the poor can be exploited because the poor do not have the protections and they don't have the protections because they are poor and they can't afford them. It's a universal story. So universal anti-poverty programs should lift all boats. Everyone should benefit white Americans, black Americans, the great anti-poverty programs of the 1960s. These need to be extended. They need to deliver on their promise. We need to have much more and much more generous welfare schemes and so on. And Coates says, this may well be true, but it doesn't address the central fact. And the central fact is the one that was acknowledged by Lyndon Johnson in 1965 when he was promoting and introducing his great anti-poverty programs, but didn't deliver on this fact because the politics were too complicated. Black poverty is not the same as white poverty. It is systemically, systematically different. And unless you address the system, and the system includes all of the ways in which protection is absent and choice is absent, universal poverty programs have a tendency not to level the playing field but to simply reinforce the existing divergence, which goes back to the beginning of the American story. Or there's affirmative action, again, a, a routine response to this challenge. 
from all sorts of people, well-meaning, well-intentioned people, that affirmative action is the way to address the systematic imbalance of life chances between black and white Americans, so that you will get into a college or you will get a job, not simply on level terms with your white counterparts, but you will be given certain preferential or beneficial treatment. And Coates says, well, what is affirmative action? There are two possibilities here. One is it is actually to be understood as a form of compensation, of reparation. Look, this this has been going on and we need to redress it. If it's redress, why isn't it actual compensation? Why isn't it actual reparations? Why is it this limited form of redress, which is after all not available to all black Americans, but only to certain people in certain contexts, particularly the ones who are trying to go to college? As reparations, it's inadequate. On the other hand, maybe it's not reparations. Maybe it's justification as an argument for diversity, diversity as a social good. It's just better to have a society in which the people who are able to high achieve come from a wide range of backgrounds. And again, Coates says, that's great. Diversity is a great idea. But diversity is not the rectification of the wrong. The rectification of the wrong, Coates says, is reparations is compensation. Money has to change hands. He is aware, he is completely aware of how difficult a political argument that is, of, the, of all the things that can be said against the idea that black Americans should be compensated for the systemic injustice from which they have suffered. One of the common arguments would be, well, why, why just that group? Like, you know, History is full of injustices, Pretty much everyone can claim at some point in the past of their group, not quite everyone, but almost everyone, that they were the victims of injustice. Even slavery itself, it's so long ago. You get versions of the argument that Jeremiah O'Keefe gives in the burial. So this guy's grandfather was in the Ku Klux Klan. That's not his fault. You will get versions of that argument from the people who are being asked to fund the reparations to the people who are the ones who have been the victims of this injustice. If you're going to take it back to slavery, it's too long ago. It's, you know, it wasn't us, right? It wasn't us. And why this group in particular? Can't all Americans claim some restitution for something that happened to them? Coates's case is that the case of black Americans is different. And it's not different simply because of the fact of slavery, though the fact of slavery is crucial to the story he tells. But in this essay, he spends far less time talking about slavery than talking about what went on in Chicago in the 1960s and beyond. It's the continuity in the American story, the original, fundamental, racist hierarchy of a slave society, but the long-term underlying consequences of that, which creates this divergence in life chances and life experiences, all the way through to the present, and which can be uncovered and revealed in the experiences of black would-be homeowners in Chicago, or indeed, though he doesn't talk about this, people buying funeral services in Mississippi in the 1990s. It's the connection, it's the continuity between the, the beginning of the story, the middle of the story, and the end of the story that makes this case different. That's what this essay so brilliantly uncovers. It doesn't make a moralizing argument as such. It tells a series of stories and it shows the ways in which all of these stories from 17th century America to 21st century America are connected by a kind of path that America got on and the only way off it is reparations. Coates then ends the essay with two historical comparisons. 
One is with the early years of the state of Israel. So in the 1950s in Israel, the new West German government started tentatively to explore what sort of reparations or compensation might be owed to the state of Israel for the Holocaust. And unsurprisingly, in Israel, this was greeted by many people, including many politicians, with absolute horror and outrage. How dare these people, who a decade ago were slaughtering us in our millions, think that they can somehow recompense us for that? That there is a, a figure that we can put on the Holocaust and we, so we can say to the Germans, the West Germans, okay, you've sort of paid some of your dues. There is no figure that can be put on this. These negotiations are a moral outrage. How can you negotiate the price of the Holocaust? If the West German government wants to talk to the Israeli government about this, we have to refuse to even sit down in the same room as these people, these monsters. There was passionate argument about this, protests, riots. And yet, the Israeli government under Ben-Gurion thought that it was worth taking what the West Germans were offering, some billions of Deutschmarks. Not because this will recompense for the Holocaust, because nothing could conceivably recompense for the Holocaust, but because the money would be useful. What would it be useful for? It would be useful for building up Israel. Indeed, it would be useful for getting Israel on a path to being a self-sufficient nation in the sense it would be capable of protecting itself, of looking after itself. Israel was poor to start with. It needed support so that it could be one of the nations, one of the states that doesn't have to look to other people for rescue, that isn't vulnerable to exploitation. And so what the Israelis did was take this money and spent it. And they spent it on building up their merchant fleet, their merchant navy, on railways for the country, on electric grids and the electrification of Israel, infrastructure. It was used for infrastructure, the kind of infrastructure that meant that Israel got on a different path than other parts of the region, became a more prosperous, self-sufficient, and ultimately a nation that was capable of defending itself, that didn't feel that it could only take whatever was on offer, but would make its own choices about what it was that it wanted to defend. The other example comes from the financial crisis of 2008. The financial crisis, which not exclusively, but largely derived from the subprime mortgage market in America. Subprime mortgages were often targeted at would-be black homeowners. And they were often sold on terms which, in the end, made those would-be homeowners vulnerable to repossession, to being not be able to make their mortgages. As Coates says, they were known in some of the banks that were marketing these products as, I quote, ghetto mortgages. They were exploitative. But the difference in this case is, unlike maybe in previous examples of this kind of mortgage exploitation, it was harder to ring-fence the consequences of it, because it filtered through the entire system. These mortgages were then packaged up as various kinds of securities, derivatives, incredibly complex financial instruments that were then passed around between these banks. So actually, the vulnerability of the people being exploited found its way into the heart of the banking system and became the vulnerability of the banking system itself. When the foreclosures happened, some of the banks found that they were the ones they weren't the ones who lost their homes, but they were the ones who were carrying the can. 
the implication of this being potentially at least a difference in the 21st century from that mid to late 20th century story of zoning and corralling of the more easily exploited into the parts of town where you can see them and know them and know where the exploitation is happening is in a complex, deeply complex international financial system. This might filter all the way through. The exploiters, maybe not themselves literally, but certainly their banks, might be vulnerable to their own practices of exploitation. This concerns everyone. The essay was published in 2014. It is itself in some ways already a historical document. It's a widely read, widely discussed essay, but it is of its time, less than a decade ago. Coates says in the essay, he doesn't think that white progressives are comfortable talking the language of white supremacy, but of course they are now. That has changed in the last 10 years. Many white progressives do talk in the language of white supremacy, and the kinds of arguments that Coates is making have become much, much more, I don't want to say mainstream, but mainstream within a strand of American political life and political opinion, which is the progressive left. And that's happened in the last 10 years. What's also happened in the last 10 years is that in some very small pockets of American life, this argument has delivered results. In Evanston in Illinois, reparations have been paid to black citizens of that town, which is near to Chicago, who were the victims of precisely this kind of exploitation. So this is not going back to slavery. This is people who, because of the way in which the systematic abuse of the housing market allowed certain people on the basis of their race to be the victims of price gouging and exploitation, that's the restitution. That is the compensation. It's not a million miles from the story of the burial, except in this case, the money is going to the black Americans who were the direct victims of the price gouging. It's possible it happens. Of course, what's also true is because the language of white supremacy has become more prevalent on the progressive American left, it's also become more progressive on the American right as a means of triggering all sorts of anxieties among white voters, that they will be held to account for the things that their grandparents or their great-grandparents did exactly what happens in the part of the burial where everyone goes, how is this my responsibility? This happened a long time ago. That is politically exploitable among whites just as much as it can become a, a way of framing an argument to a black jury. That kind of politics, which is everywhere in American life, is still everywhere in American life. But what to me is so forceful, remarkable about this extraordinary essay is that it is not moralizing. The language is not particularly charged. There is an outrage in it, but it is a really hard-edged argument. It's sharp and it's focused. It doesn't throw everything into the mix. It is trying to join the dots across American history in order to show that the divergence between the prospects of people who have more or less the same socioeconomic level seen from the outside, but some are black and some are white. That divergence has increased over time and it runs right the way through to the present. And the reason that it exists is that in any economic system, people who are looking to make easy money, including the Canadian funeral chain, will follow the path of least resistance. And the path of least resistance is to the people who have the least protection. 
find the church, get inside that church, do a deal with the church that allows you to exploit people at their moment of vulnerability. When someone has just died, they're being sold a product by someone who is a friend or a a fellow member of the church, and they think they have no options. You will find the path of least resistance if you are looking for the easiest money. That is a, a kind of universal truth. And so what is needed to prevent that is resistance. Coates isn't talking about armed resistance or uprising or even what we might think of as the classic forms of political resistance. He's talking about the resistance that comes with putting barriers in the way of the exploitation so that this is no longer the path that the exploiters follow because they hit barriers, barriers that were completely removed by slavery and have never been properly reinstated. And the biggest single barrier that can be put in the way of exploitation is having enough money to resist it, having enough resources to have options. The way to put a barrier in the path of least resistance is to make sure the people on the receiving end have resources, have protection, so that they can choose what it is to defend themselves. So they can choose from a range of options, the one that is best for them. For that, you need money. And if you have no money, the money has to come from the people who have exploited you. Just look at Israel. As I say, that is the second to last episode in this series. There is one more to come. We would also like to do another episode answering some of the many questions that we've had about this series and, in fact, about many of our other episodes too, including the ones that I've been doing with Leia Ippi. If you would like to ask a question, please do. The easiest way is probably to do it on Twitter if you follow us at PPF Ideas. Let us have your questions. We won't be able to answer all of them, but I will try and answer as many as I can. We've already had some great ones. We would love some more too. At the end of this year, we will be putting out all 12 episodes in this series as a single package after Christmas. And I'm also going to be talking, continuing my conversation with Leia Ippi about the past, present, future of democracy. Please join us for all that. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.